This is a Federal News Network podcast. AIDS, the deadly virus-caused disease that dominated medical news in the 1980s, it's still a scourge, especially in certain nations outside of the United States. And helping mitigate it remains a priority for the State Department. For an update, we turn to the senior advisor in the office of the U.S. Global AIDS Coordinator and Health Diplomacy, Gerard Radovosian. Mr. Radovosian, good to have you on. Thank you so much, Tom. Thanks for inviting me over. And just give us the picture here. What is the AIDS, HIV outlook for the world outside of the United States? And I'm presuming, I hope correctly, that for the most part, it is under control in the United States. Thanks for that question, Tom. And thanks for spotlighting this issue. It's not every day we get a chance to continue to talk about HIV, to your point. You're right. Globally, we've made progress on HIV here in the U.S. and around the world. If you go back to 1980s, as you mentioned, HIV and AIDS-related deaths have been cut by almost two-thirds. People are not dying of HIV the way they were before. New infections have been halved by 50%. But if you look globally, new HIV infections are not falling fast enough. And still in 2020, for example, there were 1.5 million new HIV infections. So this epidemic is not over. In fact, HIV infections are growing in many parts and in communities across sub-Saharan Africa, Eastern Europe, as well as here in the United States, in some of our communities in the South. You used the word epidemic. Is it still considered by, say, the international authorities that decide these things an epidemic? Yeah, absolutely. It's considered an epidemic. And many countries where PEPFAR operates, and I know we'll get into that, they're battling HIV and COVID at the same time. And I would say that COVID also has impacted the HIV response in many places as well. So we have to just be mindful that over the last 18 months, HIV testing has declined, HIV prevention services have declined here, also in the U.S., by the way, and that's causing more infections. And so to answer your question, it is far from over. We have to recover from some of the challenges that COVID presented and then get back on track to the goals that the United Nations set for to end sure. HIV by 2030. And Tell us what your office actually does. The Office of Global AIDS Coordinator and Health Diplomacy is known as ESCAC. And I know your listeners will appreciate the acronym ESCAC. It's in the S family of offices in the Department of State. We report directly to the Secretary of State. ESCAC is responsible for implementing what's known as PEPFAR. This is the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief. It's called President because President Bush announced this initiative in 2003. And its focus is on ending HIV and AIDS and in turn improving health security. PEPFAR still is the largest commitment made by any nation to a single disease, and it is a global effort. We're active in in 50 countries, and since 2003, when President Bush announced it and has been extended by bipartisan presidents and with congressional bipartisan support, Congress has appropriated over $100 billion to PEPFAR, and these investments are working to create a healthier world, a more prosperous world, and achieving health security. What forms does the money going out take? What do you do overseas to help So PEPFAR itself, and this is interesting, is not implementing programs. So we're not program implementers. But I think this is arguably our greatest attribute from a structural perspective. This is what I think makes us strong. The PEPFAR-supported programs are implemented in countries under the leadership of the Department of State and our office through a multitude of U.S. government agencies. And this includes our embassies. It includes HHS and CDC. It includes the Department of Defense, USAID as well as the Peace Corps. And so we often refer to PEFAR as a platform that coordinates a whole-of-government approach that is ultimately what makes it most effective. And this past World AIDS Day on December 1, PEFAR announced some results that included 
19 million people around the world are on life-saving antiviral medications because of PEFAR's work over the past 20 years. And nearly 3 million babies, 2.8 million babies, were born HIV-free from mothers who had HIV. So because of the scientific progress, we're able to make these advancements and people are having normal, prosperous lives. We're speaking with Gerard Radovosian. He's senior advisor in the office of the U.S. Global AIDS Coordinator and Health Diplomacy at the State Department. And just out of curiosity, how did you get into this particular line of work? I know you've done other disease-related work in other countries, and that seems to be a theme. I finished college, I'm going to date myself now, right around the time that PEPFAR started, as I said, in 2003. And my first trip ever outside of the country was to South Africa. And it had nothing to do with health. It was just a total coincidence. But if you went to South Africa 20 years ago, when I did, or if you lived in South Africa 20 years ago, you couldn't help but notice the toll that HIV was having on communities, on families, on the nation as a whole. And there was no treatment available at that time. Even though treatment was available in the United States, there was no PEPFAR to deliver HIV treatments to South Africans. And so for me, that experience just forever shaped the way I looked at the world, not only health, but just inequalities and and human rights. And so fighting for HIV became a social justice imperative for me. And that led me down a path of public health. I went to public health school and often had roles with NGOs and the private sector and, and in Congress working to advance these public health issues internationally. And you mentioned that there's interplay between the HIV virus and also the COVID virus, which is now circling the world and morphing itself into new and exotic forms daily, it seems. And Mm. so is there coordination among the State Department and the various U.S. health-related agencies that are working on this to kind of see what those connections are and maybe mitigate them more effectively? Yeah, absolutely. I think if you look at the leadership that came out of South Africa, it is actually because of the U.S. support through PEFAR, 20 years of investments through PEFAR, that the scientific leadership in South Africa was able to educate the world about Omicron, the variant. And as I said, underpinning that investment is two decades of health system support that the U.S. has given through PEFAR that's allowing South Africa and other countries to respond to COVID. The other way of looking at it is that still many people don't have access to HIV treatment, around two and a half million in South Africa. And if you look at immunocompromised individuals, CDC and NIH said that these are the people who are most vulnerable to COVID infections, and not just people living with HIV, people who have cancer and other illnesses that can cause to be immunocompromised. And so it's an imperative that these issues work together to not only put more people on HIV treatment, but also then to fight their COVID infection or prevent COVID infection through vaccines, through public health measures like masking and and social distancing. And is there ever interaction, say, between the State Department and NIH, for example, or CDC on some of these things? You might learn something through a grantee overseas or a health agency overseas that could come in, I'm just postulating this to the State Department, maybe before it comes into one of the health agencies. So is there kind of an interplay within the federal government on these issues? Yeah, there's a high degree of coordination, not only across the State Department, but also with the White House. And as I said, through PEPFAR's own platform of bringing these inner agencies together, we're learning more about COVID as well as how we can better fight HIV together. If you look at the players on the ground, Tom, they're actually all the same program. So the HIV program implementers are actually the ones in the front line fighting HIV. The community healthcare workers that PEPFAR has trained are the ones who are now giving out vaccine doses. So it's very much coordinated on the ground and then here in Washington as well. 
And what we've learned, you know, with COVID that seems to potentially affect everybody in the United States to some Mm. degree, unlike the AIDS, HIV epidemic might have or pandemic might have. Yet here we are nearly 20 years after the United States declared war officially at the presidential level. But really, as we know, the disease started to spread in a big way 20 years before that. It seems like there's some lessons learned in that effort for dealing with COVID. And that is to not expect the latest news cycle to say, aha, we're done, free, it's done with. And even if you look at some misinformation and stigma that is fueling the disparities to COVID vaccine access in our country, a lot of it is related to, and I mean, in the United States, there are a lot of similarities with the early days of HIV and stigma and discrimination that still persists in our own communities here in the U.S. are the reasons why HIV continues to be a major challenge and why we're continuing this fight here at home and, and around the world. Gerard Radovosian is senior advisor in the Office of U.S. Global AIDS Coordinator in Health Diplomacy at the State Department. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very much, Tom. Good to be with you. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the President and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything, and it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life, And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way 
to get to them and find out what they're doing and where what you can do to help them. Uh, I we'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, And I I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention and it was... It was, you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, Absolutely. Um, What I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federals organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions. Uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy, and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy, and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment. And it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon. 
and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WAPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.